Gratitude would show gladness, would show that you too have become a new person in Jesus. But what these folks were teaching is that no, God doesn't fully accept you. You're not fully in. You're really not part of things until you have made your contribution, what you're doing, your efforts added to what Jesus was doing. And Paul said, no, that's false. Now, of course, his message was the message of grace, the message of grace. And they had a message of works, being righteous with God by works. That's what was subverting their faith, hope, and love and drawing them away. And Paul's writing to them. And this cautionary tale of what happens in these churches in Galatia is something which we can learn from as well. And here in chapter four, in this little paragraph here, Paul reminds his readers and reminds us of this underlying reality which is going on in those congregations. Let's read it together. Verse eight. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, see the formerly but now, there's a transition which has occurred. They've come to Christ, they're part of the new creation. But now, now that you know God, then Paul asks a vital question which I wanna draw your attention to today. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And then chapter five, verse one, it was for, or it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is God's word. Why are you going backwards? Why are you going back? If you grew up in church, you probably at some point may have heard a sermon about the dangers of backsliding. I'm gonna to talk to you this morning about backsliding because you may have been coming to church and never heard a sermon about backsliding. But the problem with a lot of sermons about backsliding is that what's described in terms of moving the wrong direction is a slope that only faces one way. Typically, and this is true for people who grew up in evangelical churches, if you heard a sermon about backsliding, it was gonna be all about going back into some kind of what was regarded as worldly behavior. You weren't going to church as much as you should have. You weren't reading your Bible or praying with the fervency that you should, and you're out partying again. You've gone back. So it's back into worldliness. Now that's always a danger. The danger of decline into conformity to the spirit of the age is ever present. But the Galatians were not going back into some kind of 
pagan licentiousness. No, they were going back into dead religion. Mm. You can backslide into religion. You can turn from the joyful grace of God back to thinking that your relationship with God depends on your religious observances and your performance. On the one hand, sliding into worldliness is dead conformity to the world, but sliding into mere religion is dead orthodoxy. And both will deaden the soul. And Satan is just as happy for you to be backslidden in church as he is in a crack house. Satan doesn't care if your heart is cold and dead sitting on the front row of a church or living on the street as an addict. He is happy to kill your heart either way. And it's not just individuals, friends. Whole churches, that's what's happening here in Galatia. Whole churches go into declension. Whole churches backslide. Whole denominations do this. Many denominations are formed in revival, a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a great recovery of truth. And people begin to band together and they form new fellowships and it's a great movement of grace. But then if you watch it over the course of time, Over the course of time, the principles, the truth that they held to, the fire and the fervency that they had, all of that is abandoned and wanes. Universities in America, which were founded with Christian principles, abandon those. And the very mottos that they have engraved on the the stones over the entrances to their buildings announce their departure from what they believed in. It's no longer truth. Now it's whatever you claim for your own truth. This is happening all over the country, of course, in religious scenes. You know, right now, we have lost, in the last decade, 2.6 million people that would have called themselves evangelical Christians. That's 10% of the population. 69 to 80% of evangelicals in their 20s right now leave the faith. That's 260,000 a year between the ages of 18 and 29. That's 712 people a day. 4,000 churches in America are planted every year, 3,800 close. There's decline. Why are you going back? Why go back? Galatians, why are you abandoning the beauty of Jesus, the glory and the splendor of Christ crucified? Paul said, who's bewitched you? This was earlier in chapter three. Do you remember it? Who has bewitched you, you Galatians, before whose very eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Now, of course, what Paul says is, why do you want to go from the freedom you have back to slavery? So if you start talking to an ancient Near Eastern community that's full of Jews as well as Gentiles about going back to slavery, does that ring any bells? Oh, yeah. That's a narrative that they've heard before. 
God had rescued his people from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and then he came and rescued them. He said to them at Mount Sinai, you see how I heard your cry. I saw your peril, and I've come down to deliver you. I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. God intervened with his grace through the blood of the Passover lamb to liberate them from slavery into Egypt. He brought them to Sinai. He gave them his covenant. He put his presence among them, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, and he led them through the wilderness. But you know what happened in the wilderness? They began to complain. God fed them in the wilderness with daily manna. And they were like, we're tired of this manna. We're tired of manna burgers. Can we, can we have some real meat, please? And why have you brought us out here along with our children? With, it's in a desert. There's no water. Where are we going to get water? And finally, in Numbers 14, when they were supposed to go into the promised land, they sent spies over to the promised land. When they got back, they said, oh yeah, just like God said, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. It's beautiful, it's great. But let me tell you what else is great. There are giants over there. There are people three times as big as us and they got weapons you haven't seen the likes of. And they all said, yikes. And then they turned to one another and they said, let's appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt. And they said things like this. Do you remember when we were back in Egypt? Yeah, 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 yeah. We were slaves, but at least we had plenty to eat. Yeah, we were slaves and they were killing our kids, but at least we had a roof over our head. Let's go back to slavery. You may be a new Christian or a young Christian, At some point in your journey, as you follow Jesus, you're going to come to a juncture, an intersection, where the enemy will say to you, where you've come from is better than how you have it now. And at that point, you're going to have to decide whether or not the lyric you sang, which was from Psalm 73 a moment ago, is really true. Psalm 73 says this, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire what? Nothing on earth. You're enough. Jesus, you're enough. Jesus, you and your righteousness are enough for my salvation. Not my works, but yours. Jesus, you and your provision in my life is enough. Your strength, not mine. Your spirit, your mercy, your love, Lord, it's enough. Your providential guidance of my life, how you're guiding me, how you're keeping me, that's enough. But God's people, even, even in the wilderness, after, after seeing the miracles, listen, folks, these are the, this is the people who saw the Red Sea split in two. People are going through the Red Sea It's piled up either side of them. Can you imagine what they were thinking as they go through? They're walking through and they're seeing walls of water either side. I'd have been shaking. I'd have been walking through going, oh no, oh no, oh no. And other people were going through going, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. But whether you said, oh no, or oh wow, you all got through. God was faithful He delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. They got to the other side and they looked at God and said, what have you done for us lately? We'd like some new pastors to take us back to slavery. 
So when these guys showed up in Galatia and they said, you need, to, you need to understand that this message about freedom isn't all that Paul says it's cracked up to be. You're not really that free. No, 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 no. They backslid. Why are you going back? Hosea 11 says, my people are bent on backsliding for me. It's a bent of the heart. How do you know if you're backslidden? Let me give you a few characteristics of a backslidden heart. First of all, there's an ungrateful longing in your heart for where you came from. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. This is the, this is the pathology of backsliding. Lot and his wife and their daughters were delivered from Sodom. Just before God was raining down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he told them, you need to get out of here. You need to get out. But they wouldn't go. Finally, it says that the angel of the Lord actually grabbed them and drugged them out of a place of judgment. Many of you are in church today because you have a drug problem. You have been drugged here, kicking and screaming. You didn't, you didn't wake up this morning, oh man, I can't wait to get over there and hear Cassidy tell stories. No, that's not what happened. You just got, well, okay, okay. They got drug out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But when they got out there, instead of saying, thank, thank you so much for, thank you so much for delivering us, she looked back. Do you remember what happened to her? She turned into a column of salt, a pillar of salt. She became what she cast her eyes upon with longing. She was ungrateful. There's joy, there's a joyless, there's a joyless forfeiting of our existential wonder at the mercy of God given to us in Jesus. You've lost joy. There's ingratitude, there's grumbling and complaining. That's what Israel did in the wilderness all the time. They were always grumbling and complaining. Think about your conversation. Is it full of gratitude or grumbling? Is your faith characterized by joyfulness or by judgmentalism? You see, these people had gone back to dead religion, to dead orthodoxy. They had an attitude of superiority about every other person because you always have that when you are vesting your relationship with God on the basis of your own performance. They had unjustified doubting. They were unashamed about their sin. This morning, we had a confession of sin. I can tell you one, one, one of the pathologies of backsliding is being unashamed of your sin. You just sin, and whether the sin is unbelief or grumbling or judging or greed or envy, when the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, you need to repent of that, you just go, yeah, it's not that big a deal. There's unwarranted boasting. God warned his people, when you get into the land and you build your houses and your fridge is full, the temptation is going to be for you to sit there and go, look at what I have done. Instead of saying, look at what God has done. It's characteristic of a backslidden heart to say, look at what I have done rather than look at what God has done. There's unqualified loving. Unqualified loving, what do you mean by that? What I mean is this, instead of loving the Lord our God supremely, we love others above him. There are many people who do not love the Lord supremely. I've seen people abandon the faith because their parents or their children or their spouse decided to walk away. And they said, well, I gotta walk away with them. They have loved those people 
but not in the way that Jesus has taught us to love. And whenever any of these pathologies take hold of our hearts, we end up like Peter. It says about Peter that he followed Jesus from a distance. That's in Luke, at the end of Luke's gospel, he was following Jesus from a distance. When did that happen? Well, that happened in Gethsemane. He followed him from a distance as they led Jesus into his trial. Do you remember the next thing that happened to Peter as he's following Jesus from a distance? That's when a person came up to him and said, you're a Galilean, you're with him, aren't you? And he goes, ha, ha, no, nope, 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 not me. Now, what had happened just before that? Just before that, Jesus had said to his disciples, I'm gonna be crucified and you're all gonna flee from me. See, Jesus knew what was down in their hearts. And Peter said, not me, Lord, even if everybody leaves you, I'm with you. I'm with you, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna fight for you, I'm your man. And Jesus said, Peter, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't understand your own heart. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny even knowing me three times. And that's what Peter did. Peter! Now, I don't know where you put yourself on the spirituality scale, if you're up there with the apostles or not. (laughs) But if the apostles could become those who follow Jesus at a distance and then deny even knowing him, let me tell you one other pathology of a backslidden heart. You could be listening to this sermon this morning and thinking of all the people it applies to except yourself. Yo, pastor, that wasn't fair. (laughs) No, it's really true. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. People are very prone to backsliding through discouragement. Backsliding is a disease that is secret in its working. Backsliding commonly comes on gradually and steals onto the heart insensibly And people flatter themselves that they are not backsliders. And then they cannot pretend any longer and are commonly so far gone that they don't even care they've lost their convictions. I have friends today who I knew loved the Lord and walked with the Lord sang his praises, and they don't even call themselves Christians now. You say, well, pastor, what about the perseverance of the saints? Well, the last chapter in their story has not yet been written, and God will recover all those who are truly his. But as I was talking to a pastor a couple of weeks ago, I said, can you think of any good Presbyterian sermons on backsliding? And he said, Presbyterians don't believe in backsliding. They just do it. Backsliding has pain. Proverbs 14, 14 says, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his own ways. Jeremiah 5, 6 talks about the backslider this way. A lion from the forest will attack him. A wolf from the desert will ravage him. A leopard will lie in wait. Peter was following from a what? A distance. He was a straggler. And the the straggler becomes the prey. Great is the backsliding of my people, wrote Jeremiah. 
You see, our desires, our desires to either commend ourselves to God with our own works, which is religious backsliding, or our desires to fulfill our passions, which, are, which is worldly backsliding. The slope goes both ways. Self-righteous judgmentalism and unjustified worldliness will both kill us. Our desires, you see, are made for heaven. C.S. Lewis wrote that the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but that our desires are too weak. For those of us who are on a trajectory towards compromise with the world, towards dead conformity with the spirit of the age and all that it offers in terms of its values, what it calls virtue, its pleasures. Lewis says is like a generation of children playing with mud in the gutter when they could be enjoying a vacation, a holiday at the beach. Our desires are not strong enough. Why? Because we have not seen Jesus in all of his beauty, Jesus in all of his splendor. You see, this is the prescription for backsliding. Hosea 14.4 says, listen to God's promise, I will heal their backsliding. Jesus is committed to healing the backslidden church. Years ago, many years ago, my goodness, I was sitting with Francis Schaeffer, who was a well-known Christian apologist, pastor, evangelist. He's with the Lord. He was very well-known at the time. And he was, he was letting me have it. He was nice about it, kind of, like me today with you. <laughs> and he said, let me see if I've got this straight. Why aren't you in one of the churches of the Reformation? Because I, I was looking for the perfect church. I was with the radicals. We were going to be the ones on fire for Jesus. And, and, and Jesus, has had it with the, Jesus has had it with the backslidden church. And we're going to be the radicals, you know. And he said, well, let me get this straight. You're, you're only, you, believe that, you believe the church should, should just be perfect. I said, yeah. He goes, well, what kind, of, what kind of pastor would it take to lead a perfect church? <laughs> That's not fair. You see, then he said to me, he said, can I ask you a question? Which church is it do you suppose Jesus loves? The perfect one or the messed up one? And I said, well, I guess he loves the messed up one. He goes, That's right, because Jesus loves sinners. You see, backsliding churches don't look like churches where people sin because we all sin. Backsliding churches look like churches where people don't repent. Where we don't turn to Christ as our savior. Where we think we've got it. We've kind of got this down. We know our we know our doctrine, we know our theology and Lord, I thank thee that thou didst not make me Fill in the blank, a Methodist. I thank thee, Lord, thou dost not make me a Pentecostal. I have all my theology together. That self-righteousness, that judgmentalism will kill you. That pride will kill a church. Churches are imperfect communities 
led by a perfect savior who perfectly forgives our sins, who says, I will heal your backsliding. How does he do it? He calls to us. He calls to us. He said to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you. Oh yes, you've got orthodox theology. You have everything all in the right places, but you have left your first love. Repent. Come home. He turned to the church at Laodicea and he said, yeah, you've got these strengths, but oh my goodness, I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're what? Lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. They hadn't stopped going to church. They hadn't said, we're not Christians anymore. They had simply settled for a cultural and acceptable, lukewarm Christian faith that was comfortable in the world in which God does for us what we need him to do and that he won't bother us anymore. But when a church does not say Jesus is supreme and when a church settles for lukewarmness, then Jesus comes to us and he says what Paul said to the Galatians. Why are you turning back? Do you want to be slaves all over again? Stand firm in the freedom. My friends, you do not, we do not have to backslide into dead religion. We do not have to backslide into judgmental self-righteousness. We do not have to backslide into orthodoxy. Nor do we have to backslide into compromise with the spirit of the age that says whatever the world says about sexuality, whatever the world says about money, whatever the world says about possessions, whatever the world says about vengeance, that's fine with us. You don't have to backslide into that either. You don't have to backslide into legalism or licentiousness. You can front slide head first into the grace of Jesus because he's the one who is beautiful and spectacular and wonderful. And religion and the world can't compete with the beauty of Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, I thirst. And I promise you, friends, this morning, the thirst of Jesus for you is greater than the thirst in our hearts for him. He longs for you. He died to have communion with you and to have it forever. One of the greatest hymns of the church, one we sing here frequently, was written by a composer named Robert Robinson. Come thou fount of every blessing. Do you remember the third stanza? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, 
Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So wrote Robert Robinson. And years later, fell away. He could not find a place of repentance. He couldn't find a place where he could, he was just so discouraged, dismayed, and he decided he would go and travel. Mid-19th century. At war with himself, he tried to leave himself behind by traveling. You know the problem with traveling and leaving yourself behind is that you keep taking yourself on the journey. And everywhere he went, he found himself. And he was in a stagecoach, and sitting across from him was a young lady who was aglow. And he said, why are you so happy? Are you engaged to be married? And she said, well, in a way, I've met Jesus. He said, well, tell me about that. And she said, you know, I was just meditating on a hymn. Can I read it to you? Uh Uh-oh. She said, listen to these words. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And he began to weep. And he said, I'm the man who wrote those words. And I have wandered. And she said, no matter how far you've wandered, Jesus is here. Come home. And he prayed. And in that stagecoach, came home. My friends, There is no room for self-righteous boasting. And there is no room for the seductive siren voice of the spirit of our age. When Jesus has our hearts. So my question to you this morning is very simple. Whether you're joining us online or you're sitting up in the balcony or you're down here. Does Jesus have your heart? This morning, if you're convicted and you know it's time, like Robert Robinson, to come home, for Jesus to heal your backsliding as he promised, I will heal your backsliding. That's what he said through Hosea. Come to me, I will heal your backsliding. I want to invite you to do so. Would you stand with me? And let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do not want to go backwards anymore. We want to go forward in faith and hope and love. I'd like the prayer team to come and join me here at the front. Normally, I would do that after our closing song, and I would give you an invitation. And I would say, well, you know, you can have coffee next door, or you can come and pray. <laughs> I'm not going to do that today. Uh, 
We're going to sing together. So prayer team, come and join me here at the front. And I'm just going to give this invitation, whether you're up in the balcony or you're down here, I'm going to ask you to take a step and come and pray. If you know that the Lord is calling you, you know your heart has been covered with the cataracts of judgmental, joyless religion, and you need Jesus to bring the joy back. Or you've been chasing the world and all the splendors that it offers and you know it's time to come home. Whatever your situation. Or if you're sitting there going, you know, I know this probably applies to somebody but it's not me. And you know the Lord is saying to you, it's time for you to come home. And I'm gonna invite you while we sing this closing song to come and just join me here at the front and I'm going to pray over you. And we'll just fill this space up here and we'll just pray and with anybody who wants to because the Lord is at work. And you say, well, do I really have to come forward to have that? Nope. You can stay right where you are. You don't have to. He'll meet you right where you are. But you know, there's something spiritual about doing something physical, about taking a step and saying, I'm stepping towards Jesus in this moment in my life. I've been taking a lot of steps the other direction. I'm gonna take a step towards Jesus. So I'm not gonna ask, I'm not, I'll tell you what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna say every head bowed and every eye closed and nobody looking around. I'm gonna say every head up and everybody looking around and please turn on the lights. And if you know it's time to come to Jesus, and come on, what are you waiting for? Come on, let's sing. He will hold me fast, right? He will hold me fast. While we sing, come. Come on down. We're going to pray. I'm going to come back up here in a minute. I'm going to pray over y'all. Just come and pray.